So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Mona L. Issa, and she is the CEO and founder of Melonport, which is working in the decentralized finance space. She has a really unique background working in traditional finance and raising money through hedge funds and dealing with the bureaucracy and the high expensive costs that it takes to do that. She saw those massive problems and figured out there's got to be a better way. And she has since worked on decentralized technology using the blockchain to build new applications to cut down on that red tape, cut down on time and save money. She's got a really unique perspective. It was a great conversation. Let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today I am sitting down with Mona El Issa. She is the CEO and founder of Melonport. Um, they are in the decentralized finance space, a really exciting area. I'm excited to sit down and, and talk with her this morning. Uh, so Mona, welcome. Thank you, um, great to be here. Thanks, All right. Mike. So, um, yeah, I know you're in the decentralized finance space. You kind of have an interesting background um, that's led you here. Why don't you just uh, fill everybody in on kind of what you've been doing um, and that brought you to the space and, and what you're doing currently? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I, I started my career uh, in London uh, working for Goldman Sachs in um, equity trading, which was kind of a hybrid role between market making and prop trading at the time. And uh, eight years later, I decided to go and work for one of our clients based in Geneva, who was uh, a large hedge fund. And I ran a long short equity book for him. So I basically sat on the other side of the trading desk, which was kind of the investing role, investing other people's money. And, um, and four years later, I got um, made an offer. This is, this is a part of my life I don't talk about very much, but four years later, I got made an offer by a small family office who wanted to seed me $20 million to launch my own long short equity fund. And um, I, I, you know, as most young aspirational traders, I jumped on the opportunity and I thought this is, a, this is an opportunity to make a name for myself and my own track record and do what I love doing. So I took the offer, moved to Zurich, and uh, I tried to launch my own long short equity fund. And my my dream quickly became my nightmare because it was a horrible year. Um, launching a fund with anything less than two hundred million dollars is uh, very very difficult in this day and age. Um, there's an incredible amount of administration, operation, compliance that needs to be done. And I was very naive thinking that I could do that with 20 million. I actually raised 30 million in total. Um, but basically within a year, I realized that most of my time was being spent in an operational and administrative role when I should have been focused on investing and preserving capital of my investors. And ultimately I decided to wind it down. Um, I was gonna take a year off, but essentially during that year, I discovered blockchain, I discovered Ethereum, starting with Bitcoin, obviously. Um, and then and then I thought, why don't we do this all again? Um, I mean, when I say do this all again, I mean, why don't we just reinvent the financial infrastructure so that we can lower these barriers to entry and automate all of these processes and and make it make finance much more easily available to people who want to um, who, who are talented and 
and aspiring and, and who want to be able to, to do things um, without the, 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 the large headwinds. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, it, it's uh, amazing to think that uh, 20 to 30 million is not enough to start a fund, uh, yeah. especially when you're saying that you're really being gobbled up or swallowed up by the fees and admin costs. Um, yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's anyone who's raised that kind of money before for the first time without a track record knows how difficult it is. Yeah. What, what year was that? That was in 2014. Oh, okay. Okay. So even when you had a, a good market behind you. Yeah. So it wasn't about the market. It was really about the, not about the, the performance of the market. It was about the market overall or the regulations and, and admin costs that are involved with that. Yeah, it was just, you know, uh, I mean, if you want a, a little, you know, peek into what my, my kind of average day looked like, it was dealing with, um, okay, so starting with the end of a trading day, you know, I'd have to fill in four different types of spreadsheets. Each of them had 40 different columns reporting um, 40 different bits of information on each trade that I had done. One spreadsheet for equities, one spreadsheet for FX or currency trades, one spreadsheet for bonds, one, sub, uh, one spreadsheet um, for cash management, and report that into the fund administrator who is then receiving the counterparties, you know, reporting on the other side, who checks them, sends a bunch of emails the next day saying this trade doesn't match, that trade doesn't match, this, your fourth decimal place doesn't match his fourth decimal place, Some one of you is wrong, we've got to settle this before we can settle the trade. That's one part of it. Then there was like, you know, PNL spreadsheets where, you know, at the end of the day, I have my PNL calculation, the fund administrator has their calculation almost never matched. They were always slightly off. Don't um, they just have software for that? Oh yeah, you have software, but I mean, you have software that costs a hundred thousand dollars a year to run again, that's back down to the, you know, to the barriers. How much do you want to pay? to run and operate your fund, you know, when you, when you're a $30 million fund and you're charging what 1% in fees, you've got to manage your, you know, you've got to manage your operating costs become, you know, quite crucial where you spend them. Right. Right. Yeah. And so way, even those <laughs> PNL monitoring tools are not perfect. You know, they require, they still require a lot of manual input. Right. Um, so those are the costly layers there um, that you saw now, so, so you you saw Ethereum, and then you figured there's some way that 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 compliance piece, that those layers could be compressed down using the blockchain. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, what what um, what Ethereum really gave us was well, what let's let's take a step back. What Bitcoin gave us was a way to uh, was an accounting system, right? An accounting system which was um, a way to transfer money from A to B with uh, no counterparty, no sorry, no inter between two counterparties with no intermediary right. in the middle in a completely trustless way. Then you had Ethereum, which took that same accounting methodology and secure secure accounting methodology and embedded an entire coding language on top of it, giving you something that looks like you know they used to call it a computer. I think um, you know when you can code uh, when you can code. Um, rules and conditions onto how transactions can be spent and when you know what you can and can't do this becomes a very powerful tool in finance because it basically solves all this essentially what the operational layers are there for right to make sure that um, fund managers don't um, run off with your money embezzle your money uh, steal your money and run away spend it in a way that wasn't 
that they weren't permission to if, um, as per the kind of advertisement or, or fun perspective perspective of that product. Um, and we see that it, you know, it's happened time and time again in history, whether it's rogue traders at UBS or whether it's Madoff or whether it's whatever, you know, the system constantly fails. People, people, people manage to get away with things, spending investors' money or savers' money in a way that they were not permission to do. Yet we keep adding these layers of compliance and layers of operations to check and double check and triple check. But the problem with the traditional financial um, system is that it's so it's so it, it lacks transparency. There are so many layers of technology. There are so many. There's so, such a lack of technology actually, and the, you know, tracing a trade is just like it, it's a very difficult process. So so it's easier to get away with things because there isn't you know there isn't a, a good trace traceability, and there's so many parties in the middle. You never know where something is. Um, so blockchain Ethereum gives you this transparency, accountability, and a way to kind of embed rule sets within smart contracts and enforce them, the blockchain can enforce them. So all of a sudden you can do away with these operations, compliance teams, um, you know, accounting teams, et cetera, et cetera, because you have an immediate, almost immediate settlement time. You have a completely transparent settlement system. You know when a trade fails and why it fails. You can see where everything is at any time. You can see in, you know, we, we'll get to Melon in a second, I'm guessing, but you can see, you, you can, you can predefine rules by which people can do things or can't do things. Um, and there's absolutely no way those rules can be broken because they're embedded in the smart contract. So when you talk about the settlement times in the traditional stocks, I mean, there's so many different people in the middle, right? So uh, from the from the company issuing it all the way down to the individual, maybe retail investor or trader who owns that stock or thinks they own that stock, there could be, what, five, six different people in between. And then uh, when someone trades that stock or buys or sells that stock, then it has to get settled all the way through the line. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you need to, exactly you need to transfer ownership um, and believe it or not, you know, ownership in the traditional world of finance is, is literally a bit of paper, a legal document that tells you, yes, so and so owns this. We need to transfer, you know, the ownership of this asset to the new person. And this is it's, it's a lengthy process. So uh, it takes time. It takes verification. It takes people. It takes uh, it takes a lot of manpower as it stands today and manpower costs money so it adds costs layers of costs so some of that um, also has to do with like the custody right so then um, just like with what what the blockchain has enabled us to do is to take custody of the asset um, yeah. and not rely on all these intermediaries to um, keep keep their ledgers up to date or, or so to speak absolutely yeah yeah but actually this is a very interesting point that you bring up because so um, over the years it's become a regulatory requirement that every hedge fund or asset manager has a fund administrator and a legal custodian. And the reason that, that, that those rules have been enforced by law are that it's, it's a way of ensuring that the fund manager can't just run away with the assets and spend them on Porsches and private jets and whatever, but they actually have to spend the funds they, you know, investors are trusting them with in the it within the within the kind of rule sets that have been defined to the investor um when you talk about the world of blockchain this rule actually just becomes a nuisance right because investors always are the 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 um owner of their own funds because they're always holding custody or at least the the, the world of DeFi, decentralized finance 
is such that investors should always have custody of their own assets if they want it. Um, and so this rule about having a custodian and a fund administrator suddenly becomes quite interesting to, to reassess because um, everything is so transparent and everything is predefined in code. So why would you need, you know, why would you need to replicate this role when it's arguably more efficient and potentially in future more secure than having a kind of manual intermediary in the middle? Right. So to set the stage then, so the big problem that you ran into and that everybody's facing is massive administrative cost um, because of the way that custody is happening and settlement has to happen through multiple people. And so the compliance to keep up with that um, is just, just too burdensome and just too, too, cost, uh, too costly. Um, absolutely. And, and, you know, compliance requirements are only going in one direction because every two years there's every two, three years, there's another scandal. There's another, you know, financial meltdown and then regulators deal with it by slapping on more and more rules and more and more restrictions and in order to you know to re to meet those reporting requirements and to meet those regulations and rules you know funds essentially just get slapped with more and more costs so it's it's a yeah it's a difficult environment for funds and what you end up seeing is instead of the biggest instead of the best fund managers doing best doing well what you end up seeing is it's the big ones getting bigger and the small ones getting smaller. And because fewer. of the cost, because of the cost to do the administration. Exactly. You need the scale to be able to suck up the administration. There was a great, I wish I could remember the source, but there was a great article um, a couple of years ago. I think it said something like 99% of the world's assets invested in hedge funds are invested in five, the 500 largest hedge funds. Yeah, we see, that, we, we see that all throughout uh, different areas in the world, for example, um, in e-commerce, right? So um, you have yeah. Amazon that's continued to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And then regulations have been uh, constantly put into place uh, for small businesses to keep up with like local tax jurisdictions, for example. Um, and so it's, it's too burdensome for those small entrepreneurs, those small sites to keep up with those regulations. And so Amazon, of course, has the scale and they can do that. So um, and we, we can see that just play out over and over and over. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, uh, kind of what you're saying is it's kind of like on one hand, um, the regulations continue to build up and continue to make it harder and harder and harder. But at the same time, we're on a system that's been around for 80 years or I don't know, 60, 70 years. And it hasn't really changed. Is that kind of what, yeah. what you see? Absolutely. And, and the thing is, you know, 80 years ago, we didn't have very exciting technology today. We do. And, um, and probably, you know, we've had exciting technology for the last couple of decades as well, but the financial system is so, um, you know, it's, it, it's so fragile right now because we've just slapped layers and layers and layers of, um, of old technology on top of, sorry, new technology on top of old technology for so many years that this, the technology stack that they're dealing with is such a mess in banks and financial institutions. So to, to try and, you know, make any, proper use cases or, or to use blockchain or new technology to its full potential is almost impossible if you're a large incumbent. And I think the people that are doing the really exciting stuff now are the people that can really start from fresh, take all the technology that's available to us today and reinvent things from scratch. Yeah, now I want to ask you um, <laughs> how hard that's going to be because of the incumbents that are there and the regulations. But before we get to that, um, let's jump back to... Um, Let's just jump back now to Mellon. So you've seen these problems. You've, you've had to deal with this in real life, um, the burdensome costs and compliance and, and labor and so forth. And so um, 
using this new technology of, of Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain, um, you think you found a better way? Absolutely. I mean, we're still very early days in terms of where the whole space is. Um, but I think, you know, in February 2019, this year, we went, uh, we went to mainnet with uh, version one of Melon. And Melon um, enables you to, as of today, you can set up a crypto fund within a few minutes. You can predefine, um, you can predefine things like who's allowed to invest, um, what's your asset universe, which, which exchanges are you allowed to trade with, which, um, what's your maximum number of positions, what's your maximum position size, all the kind of things that you can define in a fund prospectus, which is enforced by financial intermediaries. We can start to um, define those by smart contract code in a customizable way. I can customize my fund with its rules and its parameters. I can select my fees, my, my management and my performance fees, and I can deploy this fund to the blockchain. It takes the form of a token and people can invest. The smart contract takes care of the accounting, the share creation, the fund administration, the risk, the risk management, everything operational about the fund, except the, except the investing, which is done by the manager, is taken care of, which just frees up the manager to focus purely on investing. Now, um, that's huge. When you think that, you know, my fund took six months to launch, um, they can take up to 12 months to launch. And the costs involved before you even launch are north of $100,000 in most cases. And the running costs of a fund are at least that per year. So, you know, we've reduced that to process to a few minutes and, um, less than a hundred bucks and you can, yeah. And you can, and you can start to see, you know, the user experience is not as easy as um, I, you know, we'd like it to be, but that's largely because of other developments that need to happen. Neither is the user experience on setting up a traditional fund. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, blockchain is not perfect and I'm not trying to sit here and say as of today, it's perfect. But um, if we keep, if we keep improving or if we keep developing, uh, things in the way it, at the speed that have, they have developed in the last three years in the blockchain world. I think that three years from now, we'll be looking at a system which is massively, massively better experience than the traditional experience of fund management. Now, when you say a fund, um, uh, there's, there's a couple of different things. I mean, originally I was thinking Mellon was like helping someone set up like an index fund, which means I would say, you know, for simplicity's sake, I have 10 different assets in there at, at different uh, ratios. And um, someone could buy into that index fund. Um, but mm -hmm. I think now you're talking about setting up a fund where I could just raise however much money and then go invest that kind of whatever my thesis is. Yeah, I mean, it, um, I, I use the word, I default to the word fund because it seems to be a word that most people can relate to. But um, actually, you can use Melon to set up any kind of investment vehicle. It can be an ETF, it can be a hedge fund, it can be a VC fund, it can be whatever you want, it can be a DAO. Um, there's absolutely no limitations on, because each, each investment vehicle is customizable. But, it, you know, what we give is, and, and what we hope is that one day, you know, five years from now, maybe any kind of investment vehicle is doable on Melon. Um, all the rule sets, all the risk management rule sets you can imagine are available because obviously there's a limited, a finite amount right now based on the fact that we're a small team um, and we're only two, three years into the project. So, um, but, you know, it's all open source. It's all uh, code that's there for anyone to see. Anyone can participate. Anyone can um, 
submit proposals or code and it's you know it's easily integratable so there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't be used as the future financial infrastructure for all asset management and so how how would someone use that now i know for example we talked about um ash that's building on top of that and they're doing some sort of like a gamified um fund fund investing type platform so if i was a builder i would want to build on melon and i could come build my fund i mean i guess you're saying like the options are endless or like i would set up like my own marks index fund or um or i could say hey this is just give me just raise a million dollars and i'm just going to go invest it however i see fit i mean any option that i want so melon just kind of takes care of the compliance piece of that so you can think of melon as the infrastructure right the infrastructure which gives you the toolkit to build whatever you want to build in the asset management space you can you can set up a vehicle this vehicle can be invested in you can limit the number of investors you can keep it unlimited you can you can select it gives you all the tools that you need to 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 customize whatever you want to do now we haven't got all the bits there but we have a full feature set and we've delivered everything in all the features we promise and we're now looking towards the future to what else, you know, what are the next features that people want to see? Ash is building a use case that we never actually imagined on Melon. Ash came along, um, I think it was a year and a half ago, and they said, oh, we love what you guys are doing. We, uh, we're really good with UX and UI, and um, we, we want to build a, a fun use case on Melon, and we want to kind of do something like a battle of the fund managers on Melon, where people can just challenge one another to short or long-term, you know, manager competitions and um and you know there's there's sort of sort of prize pool which gets allocated to the winner and it's all very competitive and there's a very playful there's a very playful element to it um i had actually envisioned the use case of melon initially to be much more serious because i come from the (laughs) traditional world of finance but i'm very open to anything that anyone wants to build on melon because ultimately it's all the same infrastructure and it's all the same you know, it's all the same tools. And the more people that are building on Melon, the better, because that's when we're going to get the, the best features, the, the best functionality, um, the best minds on it, the best, the, the, you know, the more, the more developers that work on it, the more secure it is. Um, so so we're, we're very open to working with any teams that want to build on Melon to build anything asset management re- related. Now, um, basically, what you're trying to do is make it much easier to build a fund in the financial space. And we talk about like compressing those layers, uh, the costly layers, taking out some of that admin. A lot of that is there because of laws, regulation. Um, There's a lot of people that make money from that as well. So it seems like quite a lot of people are going to be disrupted through this process. Yeah. So um, are, are the regulators going to allow this to happen or what's that, what's that battle going to look like? Yeah. You know, this is, this is, I mean, this is the, this is a great question. Um, who knows? Um, you know, you, you see there was a report, I'm just trying to put it up now so I can give you the title. It's shocking, but you know, the center of uh, fund administration in the world is Luxembourg, as you probably know. And there was a report um, published by Deloitte this week, or maybe it was last week. The title is quite striking. It's called um, Blockchain Technology Has the Potential to Wipe Luxembourg Off the Map, something along those lines. And you know that's because Luxembourg basically 
I think most of its GDP is is uh, made from servicing the fund market, the funds asset managers. Right. So, um, so you know, people are saying we've we've been saying this for three years. Um, I was amazed that this report came out now, but you know, this was this has been our belief all along. Are regulators going to accept it? You know, it depends. Um, some are more open to others. Um, if you're Luxembourg, probably not, <laughs> frankly. But if you're, um, you know, if you're a jurisdiction that that um, embraces new technology, doesn't have a lot going for you in the asset management space to start with, or in the finance industry, hey, you may want to make a name for yourself by being open-minded and embracing this kind of technology. Um, but in general, we're seeing mixed, you know, mixed. Um, mixed reactions on that and in general the law is the law at the moment for most of the kind of financial centers where you do need these financial intermediaries and so we'll you know we'll either see creative technological solutions that come around, come up that sort of um build the technology in a way where um you know where where uh, the law you know the, the, there's no kind of strict definition on how the law can be in interpreted or you'll see the technology being built in a way that you know can fit into the existing law i hope it's the innovative uh, way we see because there's absolutely no point in 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 uh, there's no upside in this technology if you have to fit it into the regulatory box frankly um you, you think regulators should be open to people experimenting and to seeing what can happen and i think ultimately it's better for um it's better for you know, sandbox environments are very good, but it's better to, it's better to, the potential, the potential of what this technology can do for the fund administration, for, for the fund industry is huge. Yeah. Um, and I think it's largely, you know, the focus seems to be, people seem to be getting stuck on KYC AML a lot. And I think, yes, maybe you could argue that's, uh, you know, depending on which angle you're looking at, it could be a disadvantage from a regulator, from a regulator's perspective. But the flip side, I mean, the advantages that get ignored, you know, risk management, control, transparency, reporting possibilities, um, you know, the fact that the investors can keep custody of their assets, the fact that um, you're somehow protected from a market downturn in the way that you weren't during Lehman, for example. So um, I think that there's a large educational role that needs to be played there. I think that sandboxes are good, you know, you know, in, increasing usage in a sort of controlled environment to prove your use case and then going, you know, kind of mega big with it. It's always a good way to do things. Um, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Now, um, currently, are you only doing it on digital assets, like the new digital assets? Or are you, is it being done on actual securities uh, right now? Oh, no, no, we're, we're not, we're definitely not. Uh, uh, able to interact with securities um, in the traditional sense. Um, there's because the none of them have been none of them have been tokenized. No, no. Um, it's definitely something that might be, become possible in future. Um, we're only able to include ERC twenty tokens um, in the Melon Protocol, um, and yes if there are erc20 tokens that are securities users can um, make them part of their asset universe um but that's that's really a, a user uh it's kind of part of the customization process right the user selects which assets they want to trade if they're uh if they're able to trade securities within their fund then then they can if they're not able then they should stick to other types of tokens 
Right. We are starting to see some people um, like uh, what they call wrapping them or, you know, creating an ERC token that represents an actual security. Um, yeah. So maybe something like that. Yeah, well, we happen. actually have uh, wrapped BTC already available in the Melon protocol, which is cool. Oh, okay. I'm curious, um, I'm curious, coming from Switzerland, uh, which is known for having one of the hardest, most sound monies, um, mm -hmm. what you think about Bitcoin overall and then, and then how like Ethereum um, compares to that? I mean, are you, are you a hard sound money person or do you more like the expandable fiat kind of money? I, I'm not originally from Switzerland, but oh. I definitely love this country and I, um, you know, I, if I had to put my money in any fiat, I would, I would probably pick the Swiss franc, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as far as um, crypto goes, I think, um, you know, I do, I do see, I do see Bitcoin and Ethereum in a slightly different way. Um, Bitcoin is for me, a, a, you know, a digital, um, a digital money. You can, you can buy things for, you know, you can exchange it. You can, you can you can use it as a store of value and and it's for me it's um it's it's i see it as a comp to the swiss franc but maybe even more secure and in fact definitely more secure um and um and ethereum i see it in a slightly different way you know i see ethereum as um more of a, a platform that will grow with with its use cases. I don't really see it so much as a as a currency, although it can be used as a currency. Right. So not direct competition. They're serving different purposes and different needs in the market. Yeah. You know the 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 the, the pureness of Bitcoin, the fact that it can only be used to hold or exchange, you know, exchange for goods and services, um, makes it characteristically more like a currency for me, a digital currency. Right. And then uh, as far as building on Ethereum versus other protocol platforms, um, have you guys, did you guys do due diligence on other platforms? Is it something where like at some point you could move it to another platform or are you sold on Ethereum's uh, position in the marketplace and and you think Ethereum is kind of the, the front running winner at this point? Yeah, well, uh, funny you say that, but back when we started in 2000, end of 2015, I mean, there weren't that many other platforms today, yes. Um, and so we started on Ethereum. Um, we continue to keep an eye on other blockchains that are emerging in the space. I still don't think there's anything that offers you what Ethereum can offer. Um, having said that, um, there's, there seems to be a lot of blockchain, new blo newer blockchains that are going to mainnet soonish. And, um, and, you know, we plan to research them and, and um, we've definitely researched, we've definitely, you know, started looking at things like the Polkadot network and um, inter as we think about scalability and interoperability. Um, but, you know, Ethereum 2.0 is around the corner too, and we're excited about that. And it's just a matter of keeping in touch with what's happening in this space and making sure that, um, you know, we're, we're up to date and, and we're ready to, to make a... Um, necessary amendments however as of today most of the decentralized finance in fact all of the decentralized finance applications are on ethereum and so moving away from ethereum would be silly um, at this stage yeah um for the decentralized finance space it's an area that i that, that i think is just fascinating i mean i love the, the, the decentralizing everything um do you see that as kind of being like the main use case right now or the primary use case um 
of what, of what we're doing with this technology? Yeah, I do. I really, I mean, I'm biased obviously because of my background, but I think that, I think that, um, you know, the industry, the only industry that hadn't been disrupted by technology, in my opinion, was, was financial services. And, um, and finally it's happening. You know, I think Ethereum gives us the possibility to, to, to finally get rid of a lot of the, the fat in the financial industry and, and do it in a different and better way. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Now, uh, let's just jump into the um, next thing. Now, what I, what I find is really interesting is how, talking about how I just mentioned how I love everything becoming decentralized, um, you had actually built Melon and now have launched it in a more decentralized manner where you've kind of, I think, created like a DAO, a decentralized uh, organization and, and kind of given it back to the community. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so we, yeah, so we always promised that at the end of the two years when we completed our roadmap, we would, um, you know, we would sort of let Melon out into the wild, so to say. So uh -huh. we put it to the mainnet. Um, and we wanted to make a point of uh, giving up uh, any control over the protocol. Um, so we, we handed it over to a decentralized kind of um, governance system, which we call the Melon Council, which is composed of a group of technical users and um, user representatives. And it's uh, running currently on Aragon OS um, software. So, so we did that. Um, and yeah, it's completely, you know, we, we have a seat on the council. Um, we're definitely consulted when decisions have to be made, but we have no more than one vote on the council. So, and, and over time, I would expect that to, you know, as the council grows, I'd expect, you know, our, our influence and influence just continues to diminish. But what does that look like? So, I mean, you've given it up, um, to the, to the community, uh, you're still taking a seat on there. So now it's like up to the community to vote on the direction that it goes and new features and stuff, but who actually will manage it and run it or, or, or do develop on it. So, um, so there's a few, there's a couple of different parts. So the, the, the council, so let me take a step back. Um, in order to use the Melon protocol, so we have, uh, we have a token, uh, or we, there is a Melon token that exists, which basically is a usage token and is basically consumed as a kind of asset management gas whenever anyone is interacting with certain functions in the system or in the ecosystem. Um, the tokens are, are basically burnt uh, once they've been spent. On the flip side of that, on, there's an annual amount of tokens which are created by the network and these go towards future maintainers and developers of the network. And they are allocated, uh, or, allocated or burnt by the DAO as per the needs of the network. So essentially um, the token holders and the users are somehow aligned by the tokenomics. So users are incentivized to help grow the network because as usage goes up on the network in theory um, this should be linked to the the token value and the uh, future maintainers and developers are also incentivized because as they develop cool new features and maintain the software effectively also users go up on the network and they're earning in this kind of token um, and and then the, the the one kind of stakeholder in the ecosystem that is not represented anywhere is the user Right, because the user 
um, just wants to use a secure protocol. They don't really care about the token. And so when we designed our governance, we said like, you know, how can we design a governance system that represents the stakeholder that is underrepresented in our ecosystem? And so we said, okay, if we were users, we would want to know that people looking after this um, software are technically competent or user representative. And so that's exactly how we designed the Mellon Council and the DAO around it. Um, so basically, anyone who joins a Mellon Council has to prove that they're somehow technically competent in order to make decisions around upgrades or um, any kind of protocol related decisions. And on the flip side of that, um, if you're a user of the network and you can prove that you're a user of the network and you're 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 sort of elected by the other users you can join the melon council to represent the users so you can say to the you can say to the technical council you're spending too much time on security actually what we really want is this cool new feature you know go ahead guys build this for us um and this is this is i'm representing the users and this is what we want so it's kind of um it's kind of a good balance between the token economics and the governance we've basically represented and looked after we hope all users uh, and stakeholders in the ecosystem yeah interesting and so you have the new tokens being created that can fund it um you have the token holders the users which are, are voting in the governance of that and then you have the funding that that can pay for the ongoing development so just to be clear the token holders do not vote with the token the the token holders basically just benefit as usage of the network goes up the users um the users consume melon as they use the network and the um yeah and the um and the the use the exactly yeah so the, the reason we didn't go for the token holder voting which is on-chain governance is because it's too easy in our opinion for our use case it was too easily gameable so if you had token holders vote voting on sensitive things like protocol upgrades it's very easy to influence or manipulate the vote um, when, you do, when you're not necessarily technically qualified to make a vote on an upgrade, right? Or even worse, we've seen in a lot of protocols which have uh, token, hold, token voting rights, we've seen apathy in voters. So, uh, you know, something like less than 15% of people will typically turn out up to vote with their tokens. And this, um, this is also a negative for the protocol because you know, then the swing vote or the, the, the ability to influence a vote in a malicious way is, is, is too easy. So we've, we decided to actually, if we had on-chain governance, this would have made the users very vulnerable. You, know, you could have had a competing network come along and try to maliciously upgrade code to something that was insecure, or you could have had, um, you know, you could, have had, you could have had a number of malicious attacks. Um, so what we try to do here is give the, give the users of the network, um, or sorry, give the token holders something to, to, um, to look after them. And that is the more users on the network, the more the token holder benefits. Um, because the, the buy and burn model links the, va the value of the token to the usage of the network. Um, and what we gave the users is this governance, which is um, designed in, in a technically competent way so that people making the decisions around the future of the protocol have to be technically competent to do so, or at least user rep provably user representative. Yeah. 
Yeah, really interesting. It's such a it's 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 so fascinating to see these different types of governance uh, that are that are coming out of this use of blockchain technology, you know, Ethereum and whatnot. So um, yeah, it's, cool. it's tricky. You know, it's all very new and experimental. The whole idea of decentralized governance. I mean, maybe Switzerland is the closest example to it. You know, given they have a very decentralized government government system here. Um, but it's in, in terms of doing it tech, you know, on technology uh, with tokens and on chain versus off chain, it's still very early days. And I think time will tell, you know, I think a lot of the stuff being done now is still very experimental. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, um, I, I wanted to get into more stuff, but we are running long on time. So I think we'll have to go ahead and wrap it up here. But um, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on Melon. Uh, for others that uh, are interested, um, what, what are some things that they should be looking for or where they should be watching? Um, we're very active on our Twitter channel, so Melon Protocol. We, are, um, we try to write um, regular blogs on Melon Protocol Medium page. Um, and if you want to chat to us directly, you can join our Gitter channel. There's one for users and one for developers. Um, and we're always happy to take questions on either of those subjects anytime. All right, Mona, it's been, uh, been fascinating. I love to hear how uh, this old, old style of uh, finance is being disrupted and uh, I'm excited to see it happen and I appreciate you taking the time to explain it to everybody. Pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take care. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.